Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the question that we have been looking at is why we do what we do. And we are looking at our Sunday morning liturgy, taking one piece of liturgy each week and really answering, trying to answer that question of why we are going through this liturgy from week to week. And it is clear to have a series like this that there is a level of intentionality. There's a great, de- a great deal of intentionality, matter of fact, in what we are doing. A lot of thoughts go, a lot of thought has gone into the liturgy. And thus you can be assured that even in our day to our week to week liturgy, uh, the uh, specific choice of hymns and songs, the choice of scripture and the call to worship, the scripture reading, uh, the choice of and wording for the confession of sins, absolution, profession of faith, benediction, these are intentionally very uh, well thought out, and uh, we can thank Joel Bickford, deacon of worship, for the hard work that goes into these weekly, weekly specifics. So why? Why be so intentional? Well, there are a number of reasons, and certainly because, certainly because our God is the God of the universe, and he is not one in whom you enter into lightly. Um, you don't take him for granted, but rather him being the most glorious, we want to come into a way that will uh, bring honor to him. But there's another reason, and it's simply this. I wish those kids were here right now. What is the chief end of man? That's what they're learning over in catechism. What is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so liturgy is that, that act or that work that is forming us into the image of God. And there's nothing more glorifying uh, to our God when he takes people who are sinners and he changes and transforms them in such a way that they are becoming like him, that they're being transformed into his image. And so uh, another reason uh, that, that liturgy is so important is that it is a shaping kind of activity that we are, we are going through. Now, liturgy is not, just what, is not just within the domain of the church. 
you were here when Justin, several weeks ago, introduced this series, he, he reminded uh, you uh, that there's a liturgy everywhere we go, and certainly, in his case, Alabama home football games. Uh, now, as he was saying that, I was thinking about my own experience as a uh, Nebraska Cornhusker fan. So in 1985, I was, I, yeah, sorry, I, I, went to, I, I went to my first game at Memorial Stadium, and I began to learn the liturgy. I went several more games, several more years, and then 20 years passed, and I had the opportunity several years ago to go back to Memorial Stadium and to experience the liturgy again. And it was exactly the same, and I knew exactly what to do and what to say, when to stand and when to sit down. It's formative. And that is going on within our culture itself. And so uh, education, media, corporations, governments, they too have a liturgical motive. That is, they have a desire to shape us. They want to shape us. They want to indicate into us, uh, inculcate, sorry, into us a certain vision of what they would say is the good life. They want to make us into a certain kind of people, people who buy their products or loyal to their cause, or embrace their, their ideals. So our Sunday morning liturgy is subversive. It's intended to undermine a countermeasure against the shaping influence of our culture. So by using liturgy and worship, we are seeking to reshape, or we could even say we are seeking to reform ourselves once again after being six days into an opposite kind of liturgy in, in our lives. So if you want to read more about uh, what we're doing here, uh, we have this, and this has been, actually we've had this for quite a few years, why we use liturgy in worship, uh, it's going to be out there uh, on the table out there, and so if you want to take this home and read a little bit more, feel free, uh, feel free to do that. We're intentional, not only in this gathering, but we're also intentional in some other places of worship, particularly with baptism and child dedication and membership. Thought has gone into the vows that are being asked of the participants. And even that, even the vows, even the act of taking vows is formative. Taking a vow kind of raises the bar of commitments and participation. It's expressing the fact that you are submitting your will to God's will. This is countermeasure to the rest of the week where your will and my will is falsely believed to be the key to the good life. Well, I mentioned baptism and child dedication as an intentional liturgy that we enter into on a regular basis. We try to do this about every, I think it's about every six weeks. But as elders, we believe that we have actually overlooked a, a liturgy uh, to showcase the gospel. And it's a liturgy that we're calling uh, Profession Celebration Sunday or Profession Celebration uh, of Children. And what it is, is this is going to be a profession of faith of children who are baptized in infants. Let, let, let me explain this for just a minute. If you remember, with infant baptism, infants are welcomed into the covenant community to receive the blessing of being part of that covenant community. 
to faithful, to the faithful nurture and admonition of Christian parents, to the prayers of family and church family, and the influence of Christian family and friends and teachers, and the consistent involvement in worship gatherings and missional community life. We're, we're inviting them into this covenant community. And God uses that benefit as a part of the covenant community, as a means for the infant to grow up one day, to finally come to a point to know the gospel, to understand the gospel, and to profess the gospel, to actually trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that profession is a way that they're realizing kind of the sign and the seal of the baptism that they had as an infant. And of course, when they make that profession within the context of their own homes, uh, they're invited to, uh, to come here to the, the, Lord's, the Lord's table. Another opportunity to see the gospel. And this has been going on quietly without, an inten- without really an intentional public liturgy for them. But we'd like to change that. We actually would like to change it so that we acknowledge their faith, that we can have them acknowledge their faith and commitment to Christ so that they can come to the table knowing that we were, were part of that covenant community with them. So in October, we're adding a profession celebration Sunday that will become part of that series uh, of baptism, and then next week, uh, dedication, and then the third week, we'll have profession celebration Sunday for any children who were baptized as infants who then have come to faith, and parents will trust in you and will trust in your, your discernment as you're kind of getting to know your children and hear their, their testimony of faith. But if they have come to faith in Jesus Christ, we'd love for them to come come up and to express that uh, profession before you. And, and they too make a vow, a, a vow that is asking them to submit their will uh, and, and their lives uh, to this, this place, these people, us, the covenant community that they have been baptized uh, into. And so the first uh, profession uh, of celebration will be Sunday, October 10th. And so if that is one of you, if one of your children is one of those, we would love for you to tell us, uh, let uh, Ben know, and we can get them on, on that list and we can have them, we can enjoy them, we can, we can rejoice in the gospel that has kind of worked itself out in their lives. One more way for us to see, to see the gospel. Liturgy is formative. And liturgy at Sacred City has the aim to form our lives into the gospel. So this morning we're going to look at the confession of sin and absolution and how that forms our souls into the good life that God intended for his children. So before we turn to 1 John chapter 1, let's pray. Father, my greatest fear this morning is that my message will actually detract from the glory of the gospel. So Father, I pray that you would take Uh, the words that I am expressing and sharing that comes out of 1 John, I pray, Father, that you would take that, to take these words, and that you would make them alive, your words, make them alive to our hearts. Father, we be people who rejoice once again in the gospel. So help us, we pray. Work in our lives, we ask. Cause us to enjoy the 
the life that you intend for your people. And we will give you the glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turning your Bibles to First uh, John, First John chapter chapter one. And as you're doing that, let me just um, make a few observations about this actual book, this this letter. I want to I want to do that to help us to see a little bit of how it's relevant to our day and relevant to our time, and hopefully we'll see how it's relevant to uh, our thinking with regards to confession and absolution. First of all, as you turn in your Bibles to First John, if you look at the introduction, you notice something, and that is you notice there's something missing, and what is missing is a greeting. If you know anything about the Old Testament, I mean, excuse me, the New Testament, you, you begin to think about uh, Paul's letters, or you think about Peter's letters, or even John, John's let, other letters, Second uh, John and Third John, and you notice there's a greeting, but here there is no greeting. John doesn't identify himself. He doesn't identify whose recipients are. He just gets right into it. It's a difficult, if you read all the way through, it's a difficult uh, letter to even kind of uh, uh, put together some, some outlines. It's really what it is. It seems to be, it's a flow of thought of a man who is deeply concerned about his readers and the world that they are living in. John is getting up in years and traveling isn't as easy as it used to be, so he's letting his pen and his paper do the work and he hands it over to younger men to carry his concerns to the churches. And so while it is uncertain exactly who he's writing to, it is certain that his audience uh, were believers. See, if you go over to chapter five, he, he's very clear on the purpose that he has written this letter for his, uh, his readers. It's first John chapter five, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, there was a concern within his readers, there was a concern that John had heard that they were concerned whether or not they really truly understood the gospel. And so he wants them to know how they can be assured, uh, assured of that. And so he is writing this letter to these churches because their world is turning upside down and their assurance of what is right and what is wrong is being rocked by individuals who at one time seemed to be orthodox, who at one time seemed to understand the gospel, but somehow has moved away from the gospel, has actually moved away from uh, their understanding of, of Jesus Christ and the gospel and how he's made us right and they've, they've kind of moved away from their understanding of sin and, and now the John's readers, they're mixed up, they're confused, it's upside down world, they're hearing this, they're hearing a liturgy Monday through Saturday that's different than they've been always hearing on Sunday. Much like we have today. Bottom line, John was concerned about the heresy and we discovered that this heresy has much to do with our liturgical rhythm of confession and absolution. Confession of sin and Weekly absolution reforms our souls after spending six days in a culture that is literally upside down right now. 
So here's what I want you to see as we dive into this passage, and it's this, that our claims to know God is tested by a response to sin. Our claims to know God is tested by our response towards sin. And really, there's only two points in our, in our message and our think, my thinking today. And the first one is this, that those in fellowship with God simply does this, calls sin, sin. Those in fellowship with God call sin, sin. Let's jump into, uh, to jump into verse 5 of 1 John. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So central to the liturgy of the world that John's readers are in and that we are in is, is that there's a rejection of calling sin, sin. And see, there's three responses to the claims of sin that John confronts in this passage, all beginning with that conditional statement uh, there that says, if we say. And he's taking the statements made by those who are claiming to know God but have a new version of the gospel, and he's beginning to, to get after them by, again, by these three statements, if we say. The first one is found there in, there in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The first response is that of simply minimizing sin. Minimizing sin. Listen to or look at how John introduces this section. Look at what he says there. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, even here we begin to see the power of uh, liturgy shaping uh, our souls. See, two weeks ago, Justin uh, reminded us that when, when we come with the pastoral welcome, we're told to come as we are. So the gospel message is not, get your act together and then come in here. But no, rather, the gospel is one that says, come as you are. Pastoral welcome. And then we moved in, last week we looked at uh, the uh, call to worship, and God calls us, he calls us to get our eyes off of ourselves and to get our eyes upon him. Remember that, you know, I think he was doing this kind of a thing, kind of going on right there. He called it squirrel theology. It's really like dogs looking at squirrels, you know, dog, I mean, sorry, squirrel, <laughs> squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. It, it, it's our lack of focus our focus on everything else, and God say, no, 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 place your focus upon me. And it seems to be that as John and his concern for his own readers, he is saying, okay, first thing you need to know is this. Get your focus off yourself and get your focus on this. God is light. That is, God is the one who is most glorious. And the one who's proclaimed this 
is Jesus Christ. See, he says, this is the message we have heard from him. Well, who's the him? Well, the him is whom John has been talking about in verses 1 and 2. So we got to go back there. So this is what we hear in verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning. Oh, my goodness. If you know anything about the Gospel of John, you're beginning to already hear the Gospel of John here. The Gospel of John begins this way. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in the beginning... Which was from the beginning, we, whom we, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John is saying, Jesus. This is Jesus. Jesus is the one who's been proclaiming this message, and that message is, is that he is light. Luke, in his gospel, he describes, he describes that first meeting that Jesus had with his disciples. Talk about, you know, seeing and feeling and such. Luke says, Jesus himself stood among them and, and said to them, peace be to you. The last time they saw him, he was getting ready to be crucified. John actually saw it. He died. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And then going a little bit further, he asked, do you have any fish and chips, by the way? <laughs> well, maybe not the chips. But they did have fish. And Luke writes, they gave him a piece of broiled fish. That's part of the gospel. <laughs> he was dead. He's alive. We sang about it. We proclaimed, hallelujah, Jesus Christ has risen. Now, Thomas, for some reason, he missed out on this meeting. So the disciples tell Thomas, and Thomas says, <laughs> until I actually see the scars in his hands and his feet and touch the scar in his side, I don't believe. And so a couple days go by, and he's going to get a stew in his unbelief. And our Lord does an amazing thing, and he's so gracious, and he comes in again unannounced to the disciples, and this is what he does. He looks to Thomas, he says, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it into my side and do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. The gospel. He is risen. <laughs> and so... John says that they, the disciples, are now proclaiming these things. Verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. See, see, the liturgy that God is giving to us is a liturgy that is for our joy. He is out for your joy. 
which then means that the liturgy that the world is uh, sharing with us Monday through Saturday is against our joy. And so he wants to remind them, verse 5, that God is light. And light is a metaphor. It's a metaphor of revelation. God gives light to people who are living in darkness, and he reveals himself, uh, and he reveals his way. And when John says that God is light, he is saying that God is the source of truth. He has revealed what is true. He has revealed what is the nature uh, of the world and the nature of our humanity. He's revealed the reality of sin, and he has also revealed his plan of truth. We could really just say, Uh, It is reality. God has given us reality. Because in our sin, we, do, we have a difficult time seeing reality. We, we can't see through this cloud of sin within our lives. And so God says, let me break through that with my revelation. The light is also a metaphor for his holiness. He is holy. And thus his truth has a kind of a moral component to it. God is light and there really is darkness. And so then to emphasize the contrast between God and the darkness, John states this negatively. He says, and in him is no darkness at all. So the God, the, the, the God, the, sorry, the contrast between God and darkness is expressed as strongly as possible. God and darkness are diametrically opposed. Verse 6 So if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. See, the liturgy that we hear day in and day out is, it's no big deal. Sin is no big deal. It minimizes Darkness minimizes and minimizes God as the standard of truth and life. Walking in sin, of course, here is reference to a lifestyle that is contrary to God, the moral component to his character. And what John was discovering is that he was discovering that there were folks who were saying within the context of his readers that these were individuals who were professing Christ. They were professing to the title Christian, and yet they were minimizing the very sin that they had within their life. In other words, they were living out sin within their life and said, it's no big deal. So that their profession the division between the profession and what they knew and professed with their mouth and what they did was, was huge. A teaching of minimizing sin. And so those who had walked away from the true church had not just simply denounced their faith in Christ. They, they still had this faith in Christ. They were still calling Jesus the Christ and calling themselves Christians. They had left and set up their own church and were claiming then to be in fellowship with him, to know God But this is what John says. He says, oh no. Their profession is, look there, in verse 6. It's a lie. We lie. And they do not practice the truth. Their lifestyle is false. They're not living in God's reality. 
So important was this theme that John returns to it a little bit later. If you turn in your Bibles to chapter 3, just let me read for you or read with me. uh, John, First uh, John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes it practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And by this is it evident that you are children children of God and who are the children and who are the children of the devil whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God and nor is the one who does not love his brother so back to our passage in contrast he turns his attention to believers and so in verse 7 he says this but if we walk in the light as he is in the light he says it's going to reveal two realities first of all we have fellowship with one another We will strive. We will strive to have good relationships, particularly within the church. And again, he goes back in chapter 3. We won't read it, but he goes back to chapter 3, and he goes back into this theme of the importance that if we are in fellowship with him, then we will love one another, we will forgive one another, that we will actually love one another in truth and in action. And then there's a second reality, that is if we walk in God's light, the blood, there, verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so here's what happens. When you walk in fellowship with others, you will become conscious of your own sin. In my opinion, I am the smartest and most godly person in the room. And then I go to MC. I begin interacting with others. Light reveals. And what I see in the light of fellowship with believers is that I sin. Every week, we have this announcement up here. Um, You had it today. Alex Tate shared it with us. You need to become part of an MC. You need to become a part of an MC. But watch out. Because you will be sinned against. And your sin will be called out. And see, the temptation within the context of that is we want to go back to the liturgy of the world. And so, you know, you've, you've been in an MC and you've had that awkward moment. Somebody says something and it's like, oh my goodness, that is like totally wrong. That's like, that's sin. And, and you're in that moment and you're saying, okay, what do I do? What do I do? What am I going to do here? Am I going to call this out? Or am I going to say, I, boy, I don't think, did I hear that right? I don't, I don't think I heard that right. And ignore it. Because this is the liturgy of the world. The liturgy of the world says, just ignore it. The gospel says, no, no, don't do that. That is not for your joy. 
For your joy is, is to call sin, sin. Because the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We're going to get back there in just a minute here. I'm going to quickly go over that, but we'll come back. So our claims to know God is tested by our response toward sin. And the first response we see is that minimize sin is not to know God. The second response uh, John found, and we still find today, is that we just need to redefine sin. So look there at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, and then he can give us two realities that are going to go hand in hand. If we say we have no sin, first, we deceive ourselves, and secondly, the truth is not in us. See, hidden underneath John's statement here is this foundation of what we understand is of knowledge and authority. And this has a fancy word to it. It's called epistemology. And epistemology is the understanding of where truth is found and what is authoritative. And we all are epistemologists, by the way. So everybody here are epistemologists. We just don't think of ourselves as that. But that is who we are. We have a, an idea of where truth is found, what the source of truth is, and how reliable that truth is. We're, we're common folk, though, right? We're common. And Jesus walked, walked around with common folk. And so he explains it this way, in a way that you don't have to be a philosopher, it's a way that everybody can get it. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the, ro on the rock. Uh, they were just like us today, and that is that when you come to a house, what do you do? The first thing you look at is you're looking at the architecture, saying, ooh, that's a pretty cool-looking house. And then what you do, you walk through the door, and you start to begin to see the layout. Oh, I like this layout. I like how it's, it's, it's working itself out. You can see the flow. Most of us don't go down and look at the foundation. But Jesus says, everyone who built on this rock will be like a wise man. That's the foundation. The rock is the foundation. And then he, write, he writes, and the, uh, he says, and the, rain, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish, foolish man who built his house on the sand. Again, a foundation. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What Jesus is saying here is that his words are reliable and sound for life. And because they have these characteristics, they will protect the life that is built upon them through the inevitable storms of life. On the contrary, to reject the words of Jesus as reliable and thus authoritative to rely upon, some other foundation has to be had. And he's saying it's going to be unreliable and ultimately it'll be the authority of your life and it'll destroy you in the inevitable storms. Christ is claiming absolute truth. He's claiming as the one who is the creator in the beginning. He's claiming to be the creator, the one who establishes reality. Establishes what is reliable for us to rely upon. Truth. And so a response, a tempting response is to begin to redefine truth. We live in a day where the popular sentiment now is this, is that truth, here's the epistemology, here's the epistemology of our world that we're living in. You're getting Monday through Saturday. Here's the epistemology. Truth is found within ourselves, and the truth is whatever makes us feel good about ourselves. 
Thus, sin, and this epistemology is this. It's redefined. Sin now is anything that makes me not feel good about myself. And matter of fact, you are a sinner against me if you say something that is contrary to my inner authentic self. That's what we're hearing. This is the liturgy. Thus, when we embrace that kind of liturgy, I don't have sin. John says the truth is not in us, and we deceive ourselves. Our claims to know God is tested by our response toward sin. And there's a third response. (laughs) Verse 10, and it is to outright reject the reality of sin. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. See, increasingly Christianity is being vilified as the enemy of the well-being of humanity. And at the core of the, is this Christian doctrine of, the, of total depravity. See, total depravity says there's just a problem within us. The liturgy that we're hearing from the world outside is, oh no, the problem is not within us, the problem is outside of us. That I know, that I know my authentic self. I just need to look into my authentic self and that is the truth. And increasingly we're asking, you're noticing some, what I would think is crazy, but more and more they're saying children know better than their parents. Children know better than their adults. We need to talk to the children because the children haven't yet been affected by that which is outside of them. And so their authentic self, they really know true what's true. Christianity says, oh no, you don't get it. God says, here's the good news. You need to know, you know, you need to know yourself. So we, we hear these words. Uh, Paul, he writes in Romans chapter 3, kind of the passage of this classic for the total depravity. Paul says, and he's only, all he's doing is he's just quoting Old Testament scripture. So it really isn't even from Paul. Old Testament scripture. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That almost sounds funny in our day to be so absolute. Total depravity doesn't mean that every human acts out of this depravity in all of its forms, but rather that the human being, as human beings, we have been infected and thus affected by sin, so that everyone has a sin problem. So that you see within these three responses, John is working to this climax. In response one, minimize sin, he says we lie. In response two, redefine sin, we lie to ourselves, that is we're deceived. In response three, we reject sin, we make God out to be a liar. Our claims to know God is tested by a response toward sin. 
So those in fellowship with God call sin, sin. Now why do we do that? It doesn't seem intuitive. Well, look at the invitation there in the conditional statement of verse 9. Confess our sins. The confession of our sins is really the verbal expression of something that's already happened within our lives, and that is there's a recognition that, yes, I truly am a sinner. It's a repentance, a repentance that says, you know what, I, I acknowledge sin and I hate it and I want to turn away from it. I turn away from it. A confession is not only that of repentance, but it's also something God's doing in our lives. And, is, and it, he's saying also, I believe something. I believe that there's something better for me if I do this. That there is something good in my confession. And so we, we, we confess. And it's that, it's that poignant reminder from week to week that we have not yet arrived. It is not just that we haven't arrived, but we as the church of Jesus Christ haven't arrived. So we are gathering together and we're saying, you know what? We come in here as saints who continue to struggle with sin, just like Paul did. See, within John's sermon, there is this kind of strong sense of corporate reality. Did you notice that if you read there 5 through 10, really, if you begin at verse 1, you're going to notice a pronoun, and it's a, it's, a, it's a we pronoun. He keeps on saying, we, we, we. He says, we have minimized sin. We have redefined sin. We have rejected sin. See, Paul, I mean, sorry, John is recognizing that even within having fellowship with God, that we're tempted to go back to the liturgy of the world, and that is that we start to minimize our own sin, that we begin to redefine our own sin, or we just say, I don't, I don't reject it. And so it's the weekly coming back together and reminding ourselves, oh no, we, <laughs> we must confess And so in confession, we acknowledge both corporate and personal sins, both sins against God and sins against humanity. And remarkably, this is the joy that John speaks of in verse 4 as we call sin, sin. And that joy becomes complete when we rest in his forgiveness. Here it comes. Here's the good news. I guess that's the good news that we know ourselves, but here's even better news. Here's the joy that he says he wants to see complete in us. He says the absolution that we do, the absolution in expressing our public worship it is founded upon two things. It's founded, first of all, according to verse 9, it's founded upon he is faithful. There's nothing else faithful. There's no one else faithful. But he is Think about it. Think about your own life. Can you count on anything, on anyone, even those who most love you? But he's faithful. He, can, he counted on, on what he said he would do. It's been from the beginning in the Old Testament, as God's, as God's people were getting ready to enter into the promised land, um, they, they were wrestling. They, they, their confidence was down. 
They, they needed this. They, they needed some confidence as they stared into their own individual and collective souls because they knew they were not up to the task. They were not up to the calling. I'm a Christian. I'm not up to the calling. They, before Christ, they weren't up to the calling. And so how does God build confidence? Well, this is what he does. He says, take your eyes off yourself now, now that you know you're a sinner, and put your eyes on me. And so this is what he says to them. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 9, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. The Lord set his love on you and chose you. The Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God. Did you, did, you hear your, did you hear yourself in that? Peter actually takes this up and does the same thing for us, and he says, you are God's people. Oh, not because you're great, <laughs> but because God is great and is faithful to those in whom he's called for his own, whom he's chosen for his own. He is faithful. We take our eyes off of our sin, and we begin to look on God's provision. So we have the absolution as a means to say, okay, I've confessed my sin. Now let's get our eyes upon God. He's faithful. You see there in verse 9, he's also just. There's nothing crooked about his forgiveness. This isn't about changing the rules. For those he forgives, no, he's, he's just. And we know that, back to that phrase in verse 7, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Blood. Symbolic of Jesus' death on the cross. Centuries before the cross in the Old Testament, when the sacrificial lamb was sacrificed, blood was shed, and the blood itself was actually applied to the one who was giving the sacrifice, applied to the person, basically saying this, this animal has died instead of you, you are forgiven. It was kind of God's way of cleansing the conscience of the worshiper, of the sinner who's coming in. It's to cleanse their conscience from the sins that they have upon them. But there was something about that, that animal sacrifice that was also instructive, and that is that they had to keep on coming back and doing it over and over and over and over again. So that they were trusting that God had a way that their sins were truly going to be forgiven, not just within this animal, but somehow in the future, he was going to really deal with these sins, but he had to trust in what the means he had at that, at that day. Well, there is a better sacrifice, and it's Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read for you, and you just enjoy. Hebrews chapter 9, just, just enjoy this. Listen. Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tents, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He, he went into the presence of the Father, 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself up without blemish to God, purify our conscience from all those stupid dead works. That's stupid. That was my word. I was a fool this last week. A fool is anyone who steps outside of the will of God. Dead works. He purifies our conscience from dead works to serve so that we can serve the living God. Keep, keep enjoying. Chapter 10, Hebrews 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is yes. Did you hear that? Who said that? Faithful. Faithful. He's faithful and just. The gospel here is this. Don't let your sins get in the way. Repent and trust in the means of which God wants to bring joy into your life, and that is that your sins are forgiven, both past, present, and those nasty ones that are coming up. The result is forgiveness and the result is cleansing of our conscience. So that if your conscience is working properly today, it ought to be accusing you of sin. And as it does, look to the cross of Christ and the blood shed on your behalf. Those sins were paid for by the blood of Jesus. And if you notice there in verse 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from yeah, all sin. So rest, rest in his forgiveness. And that is what absolution is about. If you go to the dictionary, you will read something like this. It is a formal release from guilt made by an ecclesiastical authority. Well, that absolution is only as good as its declaration aligns with what is true and authoritative for believers. And that is the word of God. 
So when you hear the absolution here at Sacred City, the statement of forgiveness is not given by authority found in the individual reading the absolution. Jesse. Jesse needs it as badly as the rest of us. No, he is only simply reading an absolution that is coming out of the authority of the word of God. That if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness by the blood of Jesus, his son that cleanses us from all sin. So is your conscience convicting you today of sin? Don't minimize it. Don't redefine it. Don't reject it. It is a sin against God who is light and in him is no darkness is also. Call sin, sin. Confess it. And then rest. Rest in his forgiveness given through the blood of his son. How you respond right now will reveal whether you truly know him. Paul, when he is reflecting on the Lord's table, he says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now listen what he then says here. Here's the recommendation. Here's the application right now. Whoever therefore eats the, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So as you are sitting there waiting to stand up and come forward, take some time and confess. Or if you're early on, take the cup bread, sit down, confess, and then enjoy rest in the forgiveness that has been made possible through Jesus' shedding of his blood, giving of his life. Let's pray. Father, thank you. It's, so in, it's not intuitive, Father, for us when Monday through Saturday we continue to hear, minimize, cover your tracks, pretend or something. Father, in the light of your glory, we are nothing. And what we thought was good was evil when we look at your holiness. Father, we pray that you would convict us of sin even now. And you tell us the good news is to repent and trust, confess, and rest. For Christ's blood is more than sufficient for all our sin. We thank you for that. As we enjoy this cup, may we enjoy it. We enjoy this bread. May we enjoy it. The glory of what Christ has done for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.